That is your rightful place, Lord, as king over all of our lives. You are our creator. You are the sustainer of all things, including each breath in our lungs. You deserve that place of king over our lives. But even when we don't get that, and I'm sorry when I don't get that, when I treat my desires or my will as more important than yours, I realize I can look back at that cross and realize that you gave your whole life for me well before I gave you anything. And really, it's because of your love for me that I even know what it is to surrender to you. And so we say, more of you and less of us. More of you and less of us. Lord, thank you for the transformative work you are always doing within us. Thank you for calling us your own and maturing us and growing us as your children, children of the Heavenly Father, with your very life within us. May we uh, open our hearts and trust you um, to do whatever it is that you want to do in our hearts and our minds. But in all these things, may you be glorified, exalted, magnified. May you be the one who gets the credit for our lives. In your holy name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Ooh, man. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Jesus. Well, let everybody have a great Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Um, all right, well, today we get the privilege of c- celebrating uh, three students who have committed their lives to Jesus. That's it. That's right. And just, uh, and just after my, my message here... Um, we're going to have uh, Sebastian Chaprazian, Julia Ray, and Brooke Reynolds all coming up. Um, and we get the privilege of uh, celebrating that with them. And we, we celebrate those who have committed their life to Jesus in obedience to what Jesus said. And, and through something called baptism. Uh, that baptism is something that Jesus gave us as a symbol of the forgiveness and the new life that has been won for us at the cross and the empty tomb. You know, it's based on their willing professions of faith that they'll be fully immersed in water, you know, which is, they go down as a picture that they have been forgiven, washed clean from the guilt of sin because of Jesus. But then when we bring them right back up, we cheer and we make a big deal about it, and we will cheer and we will make a big deal about it because that's the image of the new and forever life that they have because Jesus rose from the dead. And so, but, but baptism is more than just a symbol of new life. It's also a bold statement. Because when any one of us uh, was immersed in water, that action was announcing that I'm all in for Jesus who gave everything for me. That because he gave his life for me, I give my life in love back to him. And if you think about baptism as a bold statement, you realize that's somewhat of a radical step. It's a public step. It's a, it's a step of bold confidence that, hey, he is who he says he is. It's a step of, of surrender, saying, I want to live his way for my life now, not the way that I used to. But automatically, when we live Jesus' way, we're going to be different than the rest of the world around us. And for some people who do not know who Jesus is or do not believe, it's not always viewed as a good kind of different. Not always, at least. 
Now, listen, if we, if we have a, a little religion in our lives, meaning like, you know, we go to church on occasion, we celebrate religious holidays, most people don't bat an eyelid at that, right? Like, good for you. That probably makes you a good person. But what we're talking about, by truly going all in, do you give your whole life to Christ? Do you allow him and, and the scriptures to, to, to say, this is how we are to live? All of a sudden, that causes people to take a second look and say, whoa, isn't that a bit antiquated? And so as we prepare to celebrate these baptisms, we're also concluding our study of this New Testament letter called 1 John. And with his final words, the Apostle John is addressing this question. What can we know with confidence, with assurance as believers in Jesus? What is our assurance in Christ? And so as we look at John's final words... Though we're also going to wrestle with this tension that many who do not believe in Jesus may look at confidence in Christ, a life that's all in for Jesus, the kind of, kind of life that says, I'm following him completely, and they may make some assumptions about us. They may assume that confidence in Christ is just being simple-minded. Like what makes you think that you're so sure of a God you cannot see? Or they may assume that confidence in Christ is simply arrogance, Everyone thinks they're right. It's not humble to be so certain. Or they may assume that our confidence in Christ is just intolerance or unkindness. Like, why are you excluding people who believe differently? But after reading the end of 1 John today, we're going to see how John leads us to address each of those assumptions. Ultimately, we're going to see how John leaves us with this assurance that our confidence rests in the Christ who laid down everything for us. And so, as we read his final words, I want to see if you can count how many times he says things like, we know, we know, or you may know. Because he wrote this letter, because he knew how much God in his love wants us to know who Christ is and who we are in him, but not timidly, but with assurance and a bold confidence. It's that same confidence that we see those getting baptized are coming in with today. So as we check, so check out 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21 with me. When people around us, even if they assume that our all-in confidence is simple-minded or arrogant or intolerant, how can we respond with humility, with love, with truth, and with joy that comes from an assurance in Christ? 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. If you want to open those blue Bibles in front of you, it's page 988. Open the Bible app, that's fine too. Um, but 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 13. You guys ready to dig in? All right, here we go. John concluded his letter by saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, everybody say may know, that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. I'm going to explain that more in a moment. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. 
But we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them, or the one who was born of God keeps them safe. Excuse me. And the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Lord, I pray that as we read your word that you open our hearts wide, not just our minds, but our hearts and our minds that we might understand but also be transformed. Uh, that we, we give you permission just to come say whatever it is that you need to say to us and may it lead us closer to Jesus and we might become more like him. In Jesus' name, everybody said. So did you count in that passage how oh, Steve's on it. How many times do you see those words, we know, we know. In fact, John said at the very beginning, he says the whole reason why he wrote this letter is so that those who believe in Christ may know. And the reason why John's saying all this is because in his day there were prominent teachers saying among the churches that Jesus wasn't exactly who John and other firsthand witnesses said he was. And for a lot of the people in the churches in that day, their confidence in Christ was taking a hit. But John says, hold up. This is your assurance. This is what you can know. And in our day, there are many voices too taking shots at our confidence in Christ. So let's focus on three big ones. Three big ones. What are they? And how can we confidently respond? What do we know? Well, first... Some assume that confidence in Christ is simple-minded, but we know his life in us. Now, I say simple-minded, but you may have heard other words that basically mean the same thing. Naive, unsophisticated, out of touch, not, you know, out of step, or the wrong side of history, superstitious. Any of those ring a bell? Right? But, be, but the thing is, these aren't just modern objections. These are objections that have been going on ever since the church began in the very first century. For example, there was a first century writer, Roman writer named Tacitus, who, who wrote saying that these Christians brought about a deadly superstition. Or there was another a, a pagan physician named Galen who said while he respected and admired Christian courage, he ultimately called their philosophy defective. He said, another word for simple-minded. And there were other teachers showing up in the churches saying, listen, guys, you don't have the full story about who Jesus really is. Don't take John's word for it. Take our word for it. We have special knowledge about who Jesus really is. And it was voices like these that were beginning to unsettle early Christians, making them unsure of their spiritual state. Because after all, who wants to be on the wrong side of history? But when we're unsure how to respond to intellectual or philosophical or any sorts of arguments against our confidence in Christ, it can leave us feeling insecure in our faith. By insecure, I do not mean that we have questions. Right? Questions are a natural part of life this side of eternity. Right? There's a lot of things that we will never fully understand. But by insecure... I mean that we begin to doubt the very foundations of faith, of who Christ is and who we are, like Christian orthodoxy itself, the essentials of it, based on some philosophy or intellectual argument of someone else. And my guess is, living in an area like we do, 
Boston has been called the Athens of the West. We all might, at least, Ellis, I don't know about you, I just know that there are caboodles of people around me way smarter than me in this area who, who, who don't believe in Jesus. Which leads me sometimes to wonder, like, why am I so sure I'm right? Right? Or, like, we live in, like, a scient- one of the largest scientific hubs in the world. Like, do you realize there are more biotech companies in the greater Boston area than anywhere else in the world? But yet every Sunday we preach about a God that we cannot see, who came, was born in the flesh, who died for our sin, who rose again on the third day, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, and who will one day return to make everything right. And yet we preach that, and sometimes we wonder, wait, are we on the wrong side of history? In an area that values education and intellect as much as ours, we begin to wonder, will it hurt our professional or personal credibility if we find out that we're a follower of Jesus? How sure are we of all this? Should I just keep my faith to myself? Thus, the voices of culture around us begin to erode our confidence. You guys see how that happens. But here's the deal, and here's what John needs us to see. That our confidence as Christians isn't just in knowledge about God, but we know God. And amidst the intellectual arguments of his own day, John doesn't say, well, no, no, here are the real facts about God. No, his response is, he says, those of us who believe in the name of the Son of God, you may know that you have eternal life. And as we talked about last week, that phrase eternal life doesn't just mean the life you'll experience when you die. He's saying, no, no, no. That eternal life speaks of the life of Christ that is already within you now if you have faith in him. It is the life of the age to come is already with you here and now. Right? Like, but that said, I mean, as Christians, it is vital that we do learn to think and respond carefully. Like, we ought to value thinking well. It is one of the best skills that I can teach my kids to be equipped for this world is learning how to think and not just what to think. But that said, no matter how smart we are, we will not have an intellectual proof for every argument. But as Christ followers, we do have the transformative life of God in us, and that's something that every human being needs. And so even though we may not be able to explain everything scientifically, we have tasted of his love. Many of you know what his peace is like in the middle of the storm. That you cannot deny that since following Jesus, you just don't want to just live the way that you used to. All of a sudden, there's something in you itself that has changed. By golly, that must be a miracle. And so what many non-Christians may not understand is that we didn't begin following Jesus simply because we weighed the evidence and decided it was logical. But something happened in us that we could not deny And it was real. It was new life. And while we still may have many questions, we do not speak just as those who know facts about God, but with his life in us, we can be confident we know God. Right? Like, my goodness. Like, like, is that not the craziest thing like in in like the non-crazy sense that you've ever heard 
Not literally crazy, but like, is that not amazing? It's amazing. Yes, he is. Which leads us to our second assumption. Thank you, Carolyn. Because even though some people... Assumption one, think the confidence in Christ is simple-minded. The greatest gift we can give others is to tell them about the life and love that has changed us. So now, what's the second assumption often made about this all-in kind of confidence in Jesus? And how can we respond? Well, some assume that confidence in Christ is arrogance. But we know the grace that grows humility. So the first assumption was more about Christian intellect. Well, the second assumption is more about Christian character. And it goes something like this. With all the religions in the world, what makes you think that you have found the right one, the true one? I mean, with the advent of Photoshopped images and AI-generated videos and like news sources that seem to care more about popularity than reality. Like, I'm having a hard time knowing what's real and fake in my own world, much less a God I can't see. So isn't it a bit audacious, if not arrogant, to claim that you found God? And so it's become increasingly common for people to assume that it's hu- the most humble response is to say, I'm not sure. But it's actually arrogant to be confident. Well, let's address the flip side of that real quick, though, because unfortunately, Christians have given many non-Christians good reason to make that conclusion. And the world gets the impression that we are arrogant when we talk way more than we listen, when we treat others' sin as worse than our own, or we act as if we have something to brag about that we personally accomplished. Because truly, Anything we have in Christ has only been received by grace. And John has hit this reality throughout this letter and especially here at the end. Note verse 20. He said, we know, there it is, also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Notice, he doesn't say we found God. It's a bit of a misnomer. God found us. He says he came to us. He gave us understanding. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is in the Gospel of John chapter 9. Because it makes me laugh. (laughs) It's, It's about Jesus who encounters this man who was born blind. Now if you're born blind, that means no amount of surgery is going to fix that or carrots. Right? You can't eat enough carrots to make those eyes better. But Jesus shows up to him. And he says, I'm a, you know, by the God's power and in his grace, he was about to heal the God. He says, so that the, God, the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, so God gets the credit, not men. And then once Jesus healed the guy, and everybody's wondering, how in the world can this once blind man, this guy we knew has been blind all his life, how can he all of a sudden see? And the only piece of confidence that that blind man can say, one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He's confident. He can see. He's not bragging about it, right? He takes no credit for it. You see, humility and confidence can go together. But then again, verse 18 of 1 John 5, it says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin, that the one who is born of God, meaning that you're talking about Jesus there, keeps them safe. You notice when a baby's born, no one high-fives the baby and says, Great job. Why? Because there was a mom who did it. 
And when we have new life in, in Christ, it's God who did it, not us. And just as babies enter the world naked as a jaybird, like we bring nothing with us to God. We only receive. And the next part of that verse, it says they do not continue in sin. Well, do you realize like before, prior to Christ, like we lived for ourselves. We did what we wanted to do until Christ's death forgave us. And then it was his spirit that begins to give, change our desires so that we don't continue in it. Grace, grace, grace. And then John even says in the end, it's not our obedience that keeps us safe, but it's Jesus who holds us tight even when we mess up or fall short. So you see, John says, all we have in Christ is because of his grace, his grace, his grace, so that we have nothing to brag about. All we can do is receive in humility. And with the humility of people secured in God's grace, we can be confident that we are his. So even though it may be assumed that arrogance and confidence go together, we see actually humility and confidence go together by what? God's grace. You tracking with me so far? You guys with me? So assumption number one is that to be confident in Christ is to be simple-minded. Number two, to be confident is to be arrogant. But number, what's the last one? And how can we respond? Some assume that confidence in Christ is intolerant, but we know Christ came so everyone could receive his life. So this one's related to the second assumption in that it has something to do with our character, but it's very specific to relationships. But the, this, this assumption often goes that if we are confident that Jesus is the way to God, that he's God's plan for salvation for the world, then doesn't that exclude people who believe otherwise? And is your confidence in Christ really just an excuse to be unkind to those who do not believe as you do? That is our confidence that Jesus is the way really just a weapon against people who think otherwise? And this one's a tough one. This is a tough one. Because if we're honest as Christians and we look back over our history as the church, we do have to admit that there have been times that we've used the doctrine of God as those on the inside to keep those on the outside out. That sometimes we have treated the gospel not as a motivation to go out, but as a way to protect ourselves. And when we sometimes value self-protection greater than reaching the least, the last, the lost, the lonely, then you can see how this assumption could be made. And I don't point fingers, guys, because I can look back over my life and see times that I have treated people that way too. But you look at Jesus' life in the Gospels, you see he never chose self-protection over compassion. And I'm sorry if you've ever experienced that from one of his people. But if we know the grace required to bring us into God's family, then we will share his compassion for those far from him. And John is going to emphasize this by first reminding us of the confidence we have as those who are part of God's family. And that first, he emphasizes that if we are God's children, we can pray confidently, verse 14. That like my kids aren't shy to come and ask me anything. 
right? That we as God's children can approach our heavenly Father with confidence. He says, asking anything according to his will, and he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Whoa! Really? Like, we can come to God boldly? And we can ask him for things? And, 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 and he says he's going to answer those and hear us? But all right, let's go back to verse 14 real quick. Because there's a key phrase in there, though. And he says, ask anything according to his, what? Will. That prayer isn't just how we get our way. But his will becomes ours. That it's through conversation, communion with God and his life in us that his desires become ours. And so that we know he hears us when we pray, when we pray according to his desires, and that we have what we have asked of him, even if it's not always, not always in the timing we want. But second, as his will becomes ours, our prayers will begin to include praying for those far from him. So it goes then to verse 16 as an example of a way to pray. And John says, if you see a brother or sister, and right here, I don't see him saying brother or sister in Christ. He's saying it could be a, he could be referring to biological brothers and sisters or just those who live around us who are far from God. If you see them committing a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. Why? Because isn't it God's will? that all people know his life. Isn't that his heartbeat? That he wants life for everyone? Because after all, John said earlier, he said that the atoning sacrifice wasn't just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. But here's the hard part. That thing breaks God's heart because not everybody receives that life. Thus John continues later in verse 16, and he refers to a sin that leads to death. What does that mean? Now those few words, if I could go back to John and say, John, like, is there a different way you could word that? Because like, more, more ink has been spilled on that verse than I can count, right? But, but God's word is God's word. So what is it that he's trying to say here? Well, some theologians have looked at those things and saying, is there a sin that leads to death? Is there a sin that, that, that ultimately Jesus' sacrifice on the cross can't possibly atone for or forgive? Well, there are some theologians who have said yes, which is where the whole idea of seven deadly sins come from. You guys heard that phrase before, right? Like that came from this verse, Believing that there are some sins that can't be atoned for. But I tell you right now, and I assure you, there's nowhere in Scripture that supports that belief. So what is this sin that leads to death that he's referring to? Well, without sharing all the ink that has been spilled with you, I believe John refers to the particular sin that is the outright refusal of God's gracious means of forgiveness through Christ. That sin is to hear the truth about Jesus, to understand it, but still reject it. Because John says earlier in, his gospel, earlier in his letter, he said that to receive Christ is to have life. But if we reject him, it is to forfeit life. And I don't know why, but man, there, for some reason there are those who no matter how many times we try to share the gospel with them, they still consistently reject, them, reject it. 
But let me tell you right now, we don't know who will ultimately receive or reject this life. So therefore, we pray. Like, it is our job to pray. Not to judge, but to pray. And to ask, Lord, may they receive your life. May you open their heart. May you transform them. Because if God sent his son in love to die for the sins of the whole world, then his invitation should extend to all without bias to believe and receive his life too. So even as we say this, man, who came to your mind just now? That you know is far from God, who does not know his life within them. What if we took this verse more seriously and we said, and if this is God's desire, then I want to pray into this too. I want to pray with fresh confidence that my Father hears me, and this is according to his will. Because the more that the life of Christ grows in us, the more we pray, and the more we pray, the more we begin to see that it changes things if we do not give up. So no matter how many people say or assume the confidence in Christ is exclusion. We say, no, no, no. We want the life of Christ for everyone. Everyone. So yes, despite all that we hear, it is our confidence in Christ that reminds us of his life in us, his call to humility for us, and God's heart for those far from him. And even though it may seem radical to go all in, we realize that when we are go all in, it allows other people to see the hope of Christ for them too. And so despite all the voices making all kinds of assumptions, our every confidence rests in the Christ who laid down everything for us. This morning we were praying and one of our own, Tim Hodges, reminded me of the story in Luke 18 where there's a blind man who's been sitting on the roadside begging, and he heard that Jesus was coming. And when he heard Jesus was coming, he started yelling, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, have mercy on me. And people were saying to him, shh, shh, hey, that, that's not socially acceptable to yell. That's a bit too radical. Calm it down. And for us in this world, there will always be voices, or at least we'll feel the pressure of people going, hey, hey, chill out a little bit. Like, it's fine to believe in Jesus, but really, like, like, like to this level. <laughs> but what did he do? He kept yelling. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus met him there. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Why? Because he didn't listen to all the voices that were contradicting gods around him. Last story. There's a story I read recently of a 15-year-old skier named Jacob Smith. I read this on CBS News recently. This is a picture of him right here. This guy goes after some of the most steepest and most challenging slopes in the country. But the thing about him is, one thing you can't tell from this picture is he is legally blind. Legally blind. So how on earth does he do it? Well, at the beginning of every competition, his younger brother Preston leads him up to the top of the run and then sticks a two-way radio in his pocket and turns it up extra loud. And his dad, Nathan, is on the other end of it because his dad is standing at the foot of the run and he has the whole mountain view in, in his sights. And as Jacob begins to go down the mountain, his dad says, turn left, turn right. 
And his voice begins to lead him through the narrow chutes, away from the ledges, and ultimately down the mountain. It's incredible. And when Jacob was asked, how much do you trust your father? He replied, I mean enough to turn right when he tells me to. (laughs) But that's what confidence looks like. That's what confidence looks like. And Jacob won't let any other voice lead him, only his father. And when we know the one who gave up everything for us, it's not radical, but actually quite logical to put our complete confidence in him, wouldn't you say? Because in the end, when this life is done and we are experiencing the eternal life forever, there's only really one voice that matters in the end anyway, doesn't it? And that's our God. So our every confidence rests in the Christ who laid down everything for us. So... Let's celebrate those who have done just that, shall we?